The weather briefing. It's a critical part of flight planning, and a flight instructor has to know when it's prudent to take a student into the air. Too bumpy, excessive crosswinds, approaching fronts. What if the instructor has done a thorough briefing, but approaching weather is traveling way faster than forecast? In today's incident, even returning to the airport early wasn't enough to prevent a crash. Fast moving fronts and wind shear. Too much for a 172. On this episode of I Laughed, I learned about flying from that. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 47 of Flying Magazines. I learned about flying from that podcast brought to you by the Avemco Aviation Insurance Company. I'm your host, Rob Ryder. My guest today is U.S. Air Force Captain Amy Rebel Fiedler. Her eyelash story, though, occurred several years before she joined the Air Force. As a civilian flight instructor, she and a student were involved in a crash that could have taken their lives. Both walked away, shaken, but grateful they survived. She'll tell her story and share her amazing journey from CFI to the Air Force's Viper Demo Team Pilot, right after this word from Avemco. Avemco insured their first plane in 1961. Ironically, that same Cessna 172 became Avemco's first claim. That's what started them on a mission to improve pilot safety. They even reward safe pilots with reduced premiums. You'll save 5% just for caring enough about safety to be an I learned about flying from that listener. Visit avemco.com flying or call 800-338-8705 and ask an Avemco Aviation Insurance Specialist how you can save with the Avemco Safety Rewards Program. Now, I learned about flying from that. My guest today on I Laughed is a lady that I met at an air show in the last couple of years. She is a very well-known person in the air show industry and one of the flag bearers for the Air Combat Command is the F-16 demonstration pilot for the United States Air Force. Amy Fiedler, welcome to I Laughed. Hi, Rob. It's so good to be here. When we first became friends on the air show circuit, I had no idea that you had an aviation career that began long before you became a fighter pilot. Tell me about your life in general aviation and how it eventually led you into the Air Force. Sure. You know, when I was a little kid, I just was so fascinated by space. I wanted to be an astronaut. And as a child, all the books that I checked out from the library were all about space. And I distinctly remember reading a book that said, military pilots can become astronauts. And so from a young age with no knowledge and completely ignorant, I decided that I was going to be a military pilot. Um, And then, you know, about around sixth grade is when I decided the best way to do this was go to the Air Force Academy. And I grew up close to Randolph Air Force Base, and we had Air Force members at our church and the man who sat behind us, his two sons were both academy grads. So I had my sights set on that pretty early on. And then Fast forward, um, when I was 16 years old, I got a flight scholarship through the Order of Dedalians, which is, I don't know if you're, you're I'm sure you're familiar with them, but you, you know, bet. it's a chapter of, you know, retired pilots across all branches, and they have a chapter in San Antonio, and they offer in multiple states and multiple communities, they offer this 
scholarship. At the time, it was called the Cadet Flight Indoctrination Program, or CFIP. And I received this scholarship when I was 16 years old and spent the summer, I believe it was July in South Texas, so it was super hot. Um, (laughs) I attended ground school for about a week and a half, and then they pay for your flight training either up until your first solo or until you hit 16 hours. And so I was able to solo around 10 hours, and my mom videotaped the whole thing. It's one of the most boring home videos we have, but (laughs) uh, she videotaped the whole thing, and I was sold. You know, I remember telling my parents after that flight, um, or after my first flight, I said, I was out at Stinson Airfield, which is very historic and monumental, and I came home, and I knew at that point, even if I couldn't fly, I wanted to do something in aviation, something that involved being close to an airport, being close just to that environment, you know. So um, I kind of took a turn. I, you know, I was so focused on going to the academy, um, but I was a soccer player at the time. And my 18-year-old wisdom, yeah, I wanted to play soccer in college. And I was actually being recruited by the Air Force Academy. But it wasn't until my visit there that I realized um, I didn't want to go to the Air Force Academy. And I was crushed. It was had been my dream since I was in sixth grade. Um, and so kind of a long story how this happened, but I ended up receiving a soccer scholarship to South Dakota State University. And when I went up there to visit, they saw on you know my player profile, it, it kind of acts like a resume for um, players that are trying to get into schools. It had my flight scholarship on there. So the head coach said, oh, hey, we saw you like to fly. Well, we have a great aviation program here. They have an incredible aviation program at South Dakota. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I know. And truly, I had never even considered general aviation. I thought it was military pilot or bust. And once I learned that I could go into general aviation and, you know, I signed on the dotted line immediately and moved from South Texas to South Dakota and oh my gosh, just fell in love. I got to play soccer. I got to major in aviation. And then the major I selected was aviation education, which actually has you become a flight instructor pretty much around your junior or senior year. So my junior year, I started instructing part-time and then moved on to full-time post-graduation. And you stayed associated with the university after you graduated? Is that what you did? Or did you instruct someplace else? So just for one year post-graduation, I stayed at South Dakota, and I was getting a little frustrated with the, we have terrible weather there. Um, I wasn't getting (laughs) as many students as I wanted, and so I started looking for jobs on the East Coast. I just had this idea that I wanted to go to the East Coast, and my sister, who is a Marine, she was stationed at the Pentagon at the time, and so I am looking online, and I just so happen to see this job posting for the Naval Academy. It was called the Navy Annapolis Flight Center. And they needed instructors for, you know, the midshipmen's summer flight program. And so I jokingly send this to my sister. I say, hey, I could come train your Navy buddies. And she said, throw in your application. I'll find you a place to live. And so I threw in my application. I got called the next day, ended up going out and interviewing, got hired. They hired me at my interview. So I packed up, moved to Annapolis, Maryland, And then that's actually where what we're going to talk about took place. But I moved out there and then I instructed there for almost two years. And that is when I found out about officer training school and ultimately 
you know, I had accrued about 1300 hours at that point. And so I was, I had the reduction for the ATP, yes. uh, the new ATP rolling that re requires 1500. I had the 1250. Right. So I just met that requirement. And then I got selected for officer school with a pilot slot. So um, I took the fork in the road that led to the Air Force. Amy, when you started training those future naval aviators, what airplanes did you use? Were you flying T-34 Charlies? No, um, we were just in Cessnas and Piper, uh, little Piper Warriors. Wow. And so they, um, it you know, typical to like what uh, Air Force does, IFT at Doss Field in Colorado, they fly the little diamonds. Right. Um, so they're little prop aircraft and that's what you start in. So we did their powered flight program in Annapolis in Cessnas and Piper Warriors. And then they would come solo with us. And then we also, you know, I had a smattering of other students as well. We were closely tied to the Baltimore Community College. So we had people back on their GI bills flying with us. We had the Andrews Guard base guys coming to us to get their CFIs and their ATPs. And then we had other Navy, active duty Navy F-18 guys stationed in Virginia come to our school to also do their CFI and their um, ATPs and stuff. So it was a really, really cool environment and an awesome airport to work at, especially when it came to military connections. And I was going to say the military uh, milieu there was attractive to you. So you went uh, after uh, officers training. Yeah. So I didn't even know about officer school. And, you know, it, it's I'm truncating the version of this story as much as I can, but um, I was always still interested in military aviation, but I thought I had missed the boat because I didn't go to the academy and I didn't do ROTC. And then it wasn't until one of my students who was a Navy pilot was asked me, you know, why are you, what are you doing here? Go do, you know, go do something cool in the military. You can always come back and do this. And I told him, you know, well, I kind of missed the boat. And they explained to me what officer school was and that's when you know I started my application the next day. <laughs> <laughs> and so you got in the Air Force, then you went back to Texas for training in the Air Force? No, not to Texas. I went to Maxwell Air Force Base for officer school and then Columbus, Mississippi for uh, undergraduate pilot training. And I stayed in Columbus to do intro to fighter fundamentals in the T 38. The T 38, even after all these years, is still a heck of an airplane. Tell me about how the course works as you move from your initial training and then eventually worked your way up into Vipers. Uh, yeah. So UPT or undergraduate pilot training, it, we all start in a T6 and then they basically rack and stack you or rank you from one to X. We had, I believe, 27 people in my class. And so they rank you from 1 to 27, and then you can put your preferences. Either you want to go to the fighter-bomber track, or you want to go to the cargo airlift track, or helicopters. And so out of the 27, seven of us were selected for fighter-bomber. So we moved on to the T-38. The rest of the 20 went and flew the T-1. So we go Jayhawks. Yep. So we split into separate groups at that point. And then after T-38s, it's about six more months of training then if you fly the T-38, you are eligible to fly any aircraft in the Air Force inventory. So you're kind of flirting with a disaster there because, only you know, it's depending on where you rank in your class and what the Air Force needs at the time. You might be flying what's number one on your list or what's number 30. So, um, you know, because you're now competing against the T-1 people as well. And they have, you know, the number one person over in T-1s will most likely get their choice. So, 
ultimately, um, I was lucky that I got an F-16 because they stopped giving F-16s the year that I started or graduated pilot training because they had so backlogged training from the year prior. So they had completely stopped giving out F-16 assignments. And that lasted for about the first half of the year. And then right before my class got our assignments, they started dropping or giving F-16 assignments again. And so I was one of the first people to start receive, you know, that got an F-16 assignment out of, you know, a huge break that they took for assigning them. So I was lucky to end up in the F-16. And uh, yeah, the rest is kind of history after that. And once you got your slot with building time, did you get, what, a thousand hours in the F-16 before you found out about the demo? Or or tell me about uh, (laughs) why and what led you to select or uh, go after that slot as the F-16 demo pilot, because that is that's top of the heap for two years. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not, I don't have a thousand hours in the Viper. Um, That is a huge accomplishment that um, comes very slowly because our sorties are shorter than uh, most because we're fighter jets with no gas. But um, I spent (laughs) post- Only a T-38 has shorter legs, I think. Yeah. Or sheesh. Yeah. Maybe they, yeah, probably about the same actually. Um, So after B course or basic course where I got qualified as an F-16 pilot, I went to Korea. I was stationed at Kinsan Air Base there, and I spent the first seven months as a wingman, and then I got selected for the flight lead upgrade, um, which ultimately, you know, I got selected for the flight lead upgrade a little earlier than is typical, which was cool, but it was also a little nerve-wracking because I, I was happy to be a wingman and and stay learning before I was, you know, put into the flight lead role. But I went through the upgrade in Korea and then came to Shaw in South Carolina, and it just so happened the my first day at Shaw Air Force Base, I met the previous demo pilot, Toro. We were both getting our G-suits fit in the AFE shop or air, flu, air crew flight equipment shop. And he, we, you know, just got to chatting. He ended up, a, you know, a week or two later asking if I wanted to be a safety officer on the Viper demo team, which I didn't know almost anything about it. So I said, sure, you know, sure, if you say it's cool, but I don't really know what you mean. And so he explained, you know, gave me some academics on it. And then I went to my first air show with the team last year in Fort Lauderdale. And oh boy. Yeah. And really, my only, the only air show I had ever been to, aside from one that I went to when I was 10 years old, that my dad actually left me at that left me at, but that's another story. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> so I went to the my first air show with the team and I just fell in love working with the team. And so, um, you know, it circumstances just kind of worked out where other safety officers weren't able to go on some trips. And so uh, Toro just kept asking me if I was available. So I just kept giving up weekends to go on the road with the team. And then they sent out the call for the next demo pilot, which is basically where they say we're hiring, you know, put in your application. And the requirements for it are you have to be an experienced flight lead, which the requirements for that, um, there is a time requirement. There's, you know, a, a couple different requirements that uh, require, you know, that allow you to be an experienced flight lead. But I had that requirement and I didn't even know that I was qualified to apply for the demo position. So I was surprised to find out that I was qualified. So I went and actually drove over to Toro's office the day they posted the call and asked him, you know, 
hey, are have they already figured out who they want to do this? Or, you know, am I going to basically, essentially, am I going to waste my time if I put effort into applying? You know, if is it already kind of predetermined? And he's like, you know, let me ask. I'm not really sure, but I'll ask for you and, and let you know. And so he called me later that day and, you know, him and I had talked before about me applying but he called me later and said, no, you know, they're they're truly looking, so it's worth putting in an application. So I know putting in an application, I got selected for the interview process and, uh, yeah, ultimately got announced as the next demo team pilot and commander. <laughs> Congratulations. And it's been great to see you around the season. Uh, we started uh, early in the season for 2022. We wound up all together. Uh, you and Bayo, Kristen Wolf, and I and others were down in New Orleans, and you treated a young child, a young girl, with such great respect. Both you and Bayo did. Uh, it had to be an inspiration for her as 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 it's been an inspiration for you to be able to be in this position as the demo pilot. Oh, absolutely. I, I always tell people, you know, the best part about doing this is when we go to these air shows, we're basically meeting the next generation of pilots, fighter pilots, airmen, maintainers. We're meeting them first because they come to the air show and, and you never know who we're inspiring. And it could be young kids, it could be young adults, but ultimately, you know, I'm high-fiving them first and they might be my wingman someday or they might be taking over, you know, <laughs> I this job is going to continue being super important long after I'm done doing it. And so, you know, I get to meet the next generation that's going to step into this role pretty much first, which is awesome. That's a very cool thing. Well, we have an opportunity now to go back before your Air Force time to your I Laughed incident when you were in Maryland and you had a student. Tell us about what happened. And because it was not just an incident, it was a real crash. Tell us what happened for your I Laughed incident. Set us up. Okay. So, man. All right. To set you, set the scene a little bit, we are at the Annapolis airport and it is summertime, I believe July, and this student of mine, I had only flown with him one other time. He was a very impressive student, and he shows up to flight plan, and the reason I had only flown with him one other time is because his previous instructor had just moved away. So I had taken him on as my student, and he was one flight away from going to his private pilot check ride. So he's a very impressive student. Um, he's out at the airport mission planning. You know, I'm flying before this. So he's doing all the ground planning and everything. I show up. We look at the weather and there is a front coming in, but we are supposed to be landed, you know, over two hours prior to this front getting here. And, you know, standard summer weather in Annapolis, pop-up thunderstorms, nothing to be afraid of, you know, and cool, there's a front coming in, but we'll be on the ground well within the regulations um, that are stipulated by in the far aim. So we're ready to go. Um, we take off. We And, you know, in Annapolis, we're inside the SFRA, that special flight rules area that surrounds Inside the DC. CIFRA. Yeah, you yep. got to have the uh, authorization. You got to have the training. Right. So we, our airport was actually inside of that uh, CIFRA. So you know, we're always on a flight plan and we would always exit. And I think we'd usually use the paleo gate. We'd exit through the paleo gate and go out to the Easton airport, or there was a couple other airports out there that we'd go do training at and maneuvers, things like that. So we take off, we head across the bay and we get out to the Easton airport. Well, 
Remember how I said we were training the Navy pilots? Um, They were in the middle of their summer training. So we show up to the pattern and there are five other airplanes in this pattern, you know, messing around and we get irritated pretty quickly because we're trying to get a couple landings done and get out of there, right? So we try to do one. We end up breaking out uh, because another plane cuts in front of us. It's a brand new student on his first solo. So we're like, you know what? This is kind of pointless training. Let's just go home and get our landings done at home. It so, does get kind of challenging when you get a flight school around and a bunch of uh, a bunch of airplanes in the pattern. That even happens around where I live. Uh, so I have to wait sometimes 10, 15 minutes when when the, the other students are heading out. So, yeah, I understand that crowding. And it can be a big challenge. It can be dangerous. Oh, yeah, it can definitely be dangerous. And, you know, especially if you're the person with the experience, which at that time I was, it was, you know, we can get better training elsewhere, you know. So we turn to go back home. And as we point back towards Annapolis, we can see this front. And it is, it looks like it's about 100 miles away from Baltimore, which is about, um, you know, 50 to 60 miles away from Annapolis. So we turn around and we're like, oh, man, that weather is here way earlier than it's supposed to be. So we start talking on the radio because we're talking to approach, you know, they have to let us back into inside the SFRA. And yes. so, you know, we're getting our clearance, we're getting our squawk to get back in. And I lived at the time across the bay at this little airport in Stevensville. And so there's a little airport there. And so we're like, oh, whatever, if we can't get back in or go to Annapolis, we can just go hang out at this airport that's right next to my apartment. No problem. So we come up with this game plan and I tell my student, I go, hey, you know what? Just let me fly. Let's, I just want to get back on the ground. This weather, you know, showed up quicker than we thought. Um, let's just not mess with it and get home. And we can already see like the winds are changing. We have a pretty, um, a much bigger headwind than we had when we left. So I push up the power. We're coming back across the bay. And um, and what airplane hear, are you flying at this point? Oh, uh, we're in a 172. Okay. Yep, and we it was in a glass – it was a 172 SP, so it had a glass uh, cockpit, which was, you know, at the time really, really cool. So we're coming <laughs> back across the bay, and uh, we hear Baltimore start diverting airplanes, you know, 100 miles away or so. So, like, airplanes start diverting for this uh, front that's coming in. And they tell us, you know, hey, contact, you know, your um, CTAF or frequency, goodbye. So we get off our frequ- their frequency. We go to our – uh, pattern frequency and there is someone another instructor is flying with a student in the pattern and they're the only ones I hear them call for a full stop we're on about a five mile final and so I say oh let's just do a straight in because you know this let's just get on the ground you know so I'm still flying and I'm flying a straight uh, straight in approach to the runway um, we're the only people airborne at this point the last person has full stopped maybe two minutes in front of us and I'm flying this approach. I tell my student, I jokingly say to him, oh, prepared to be impressed. This is the first time you're ever going to see me land. And, you know, we're chuckling about it. I, oh, uh, what did we do? Idle pitch or idle flare, you know, I'm doing all those things. And I get about, oh my gosh, I want to say five feet off the ground. Like I am ready for those wheels to kiss the runway. And all of a sudden, we are pointed straight up and all I can see is sky. 
And you had I, that much of a wind shear that was or a microburst, perhaps. Yep, because our plane goes straight up. And I'm like, I, like I like blinked and I couldn't even believe what had happened. So I go full power. And as I'm putting the power full, it switches. I get a quartering tailwind, which then starts to basically flip us over on the left side of the wing. So we start going, uh, we start getting flipped over. Thankfully, we are close enough to the ground at this point that as it starts to try to flip us, the wing catches the ground first and like pushes us or like flips us upright. And as this is happening, you know, like the prop smacks the ground. At some point I had pulled the throttle back to idle, thankfully. um, And we just go spinning, you know, we're in the grass. And but both me and my student are just in shock. We're just sitting there um, absolutely dumbfounded at what, like, what just happened. So and in other so, words, you came to a very abrupt stop after you, after you spun around. In other words, it, and, and the wind was, you, you never got to 90 degrees of bank until before that wing hit, correct? Correct. Yep. So basically, um, so I'm describing it poorly, but what basically what happened was as we're in the flare, we get essentially a microburst where an extreme headwind, which then set us, sent us vertical and then a quartering tailwind, which started to flip us over. Um, and then as you know, the wing hits and snaps us upright, but it doesn't snap us upright in a, a nice fashion. You know, it's like prop into the ground and we slam back down and we're like completely at a stop, like abruptly at a stop now. And, um, Oh my gosh. So we shut down the aircraft. Um, we get out and as we're going inside, it just starts pouring rain. And so we get inside and the other, the other instructor is inside. He goes, Oh, Hey, you made it back just in time. And I was like, yeah, just in time to crash. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, go look outside. Oh no. So he goes outside. He's like, Oh my gosh. Meanwhile, another car comes up and he's like on his cell phone, like dialing nine one one. Because he has seen all of this happen from the traffic light, but he couldn't see us because the you know there's a bunch of buildings, so he just sees us go vertical and then start to get flipped over. So he thinks that we're upside down and possibly trapped in this airplane and maybe not alive. So he rush you know pulls in and is dialing nine one one on his cell phone, and everyone is like, oh my gosh! Like all of a sudden, everyone's freaking out. Of course, we're they're like, are you okay? You know, me and the student were totally fine. Um, but we were did shaken, you have any, obviously. Just shaken up. Did you have any injury at all? Did, did with Nothing with um, any back issues or anything like that? No. I mean, him and I were both sore from it, you know, and of course the seatbelt kind of bites you a little bit. Um, it was not, it was way less, um, it was way less than I, I would have thought, you know, but also we had the seatbelts, those seatbelts that are like the locking seatbelts. So, I mean, we stayed pretty much straight in our seats. Gotcha. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I truly, it all happened so fast. I was never thinking about my body or myself. I was mostly like, okay, one, are we alive? Yes. Two, the airplane's broken. Oh my gosh. And then three, like, let's get inside. And of course, you know, we were shaking and I was shaking up for a long time after this. But um, of course, you know, we call the chief pilot we call you know we're calling making all these calls we're immediately filling out accident reports and i'm gathering data i'm gathering all the metars and the tafs and the weather reports that we had before we took off because i'm like i truly don't um like 
we were within all the regulations and this happened, you know, and I was making sure that we had all the proof to back up like the METAR that was reported. Oh, I forgot to mention the funniest part of this is that the ADIS, There is no funny part of this. <laughs> there is no funny part, but this this part is ironic is after we slam into the ground, um, our traffic advisory where it broadcasts ADIS says, caution, wind shear. Oh, and, and you heard that on the radio after you crashed? Yep. Oh. It, uh, and it would say that sometimes because our airport was located, like there was a bank building at one end, there was a, a river at the other, and it was in between these buildings and trees. So crosswinds there were pretty gnarly. Nothing crazier than, you know, the 40 knots of crosswind you get in South Dakota. But I mean, it, it, the winds, it would do say, up, you know, caution, wind shear when there was a slight crosswind and it was the, the buildings were, you know, knocking the wind mm-hmm. around. Anyways, um, so we start filling out the reports and everything. We talk to the chief pilot. I eventually um, make it home. I'm very shaken up. And the next morning, you know, they're like, the investigators are coming out. They'll be there at 730. Of course, by this point, it's midnight. I'm exhausted. My nerves are just frayed. I'm, you know, freaking out. And now I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is, you know, it took me a while to process. This is a full up crash, you know, and the airplane, we didn't know the damage. Initially, they thought it was totaled. Um, you know, it's the wing is bent up. The prop is all bent. I mean, it, it did not look pretty. And so, you know, I'm starting to process like, oh, my gosh, this was an actual crash. And I hadn't even thought about my certificates or anything until they said, oh, yeah, the investigators are coming out in the morning. So, of course, that's a scary thing to hear. Um, so I go out and, you know, go meet the investigators in the morning and – at first, the one of them says, "What? hey, what time did this happen at? And so, you know, I explained the time. And he goes, you know what's so crazy? I just so happened to be down the street in the shopping center that was located right next to the airport. And he goes, it was perfectly sunny. And all of a sudden, the door to the phone store that he was at started violently smacking open and closed. And oh so my. everybody went outside And he was like, I'd never seen something like that before. And so just so crazy that the guy investigating this air crash or airplane crash happened to be located, you know, literally right next to the airport and experienced the wind phenomenon that we did, the, you know, wind shear or microburst that happened. And so he goes, yeah, he goes, that's so crazy. Um, I can't believe um, that happened. And so then... You know, through the investigation, um, once, you know, once we told all of our stories and even uh, it helped, you know, the guy who I said that was sitting at the stop line, he w- stoplight, he was a very seasoned instructor who actually used to work for the school. Um, he talked about how he was sitting at the stoplight thinking, wow, that's a really good looking approach, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, you see the plane go vertical and come back down. So it was honestly lucky for me that I had so many witnesses around and everyone who could, you know, really attest to the story that I was telling, you know, because an airplane crash is not a, a small thing to come back from, especially if they think it's the pilot's fault. So it um, sure isn't. Yeah. So throughout the investigation, um, actually, you know, happy to report they did not find any pilot error in what happened. It was truly just unforecasted. They I think they ended up listing it as unforecasted wind shear. Um, they didn't go as far to call it a microburst because they didn't feel like they had the proper like equipment or anything to back up that claim. Um, but they did list it as unforecasted wind shear. And then I had to do a 
um, you know, I continued to instruct and then it wasn't until I think it was September or October, um, I went and flew with a safety pilot with the FAA. Um, and he just had me do some random maneuvers just to make sure that, um, they, cause I think that, um, they wanted to make sure like my stall awareness was good and stuff. Cause you know, they were like, no, you know, aside from the eyewitness accounts, <laughs> this could have been a, you know, you put the aircraft into of a course. stall or something, you know, of course. So I went into the checkout, you know, with the FAA who, um, there was no issue there. So it was just, uh, yeah, a, a very shaky experience. And, uh, one of my favorite things about this is my boss at, uh, NAFC, he, <laughs> is a former Marine fighter pilot. And I call him a crusty old Marine because that's what he is. And <laughs> him and I had a very, you know, we had a great relationship. And I remember the next day, the next day he tells me, hey, you know, go home, take some time. Um, I don't, you know, take some time to recover from this. You know, it's obviously going to shake you up a little bit. And, you know, really just take your time getting back in the the plane and stuff. And then the following day, I show up at the airport and I said, you know, I'm going to take today and tomorrow to, you know, kind of recoup and then I'll come back after the weekend. And he goes, well, you got to get back on the horse. Like what, <laughs> you know, let's go, go get in a plane today. And I was like, I'm not ready to fly. But it was so funny how the first day, you know, he's all empathetic and, you know, sure. take your time. It's all good. And then the next day he's like, well, you got to get back on the horse. You know, you got bucked off, but get back on. I'm like, yeah, man, I'm going to, but just give me a day or two. <laughs> I was and... wondering about that. Well, tell you what, here, let's, Amy, let's do this. Let's okay. take a break. I want to okay. come back and find out a couple of more things, but primarily I want to uh, find out what you learned about flying from that. So we'll be right back. Sure. Okay. Avemco is the only aircraft insurance company that lets you call them directly. In fact, they want you to call them. They love talking about airplanes. And if you've got a squawk with your insurance company, even if it's with a Vemco, they want to hear about it. It's that direct, one-on-one -on -one personal contact that sets a Vemco apart. Visit avemco.com slash flying or call them today at 800-338-8705. 800-338-8705. Say you and I learned about flying from that listener, and you'll save 5% on your annual premium. Now, back to I Laughed. We are back with Amy Rebel Fiedler, United States Air Force's Air Combat Command F-16 demo team, the Viper demo team pilot, who, when she was a general aviation pilot before her Air Force career, survived a crash with a student who was just about ready to take the check ride. Before, Amy, we get to the lessons learned and what you learned about flying from that, tell me about your student who was just about ready to get his private pilot's license. Did he ever continue with it or did this scare the bejeebers out of him? Well, not only did he get his private pilot's license, he continued to fly with me. We got him through his instrument rating as well and we Whoa. actually are still friends on social media, and we actually, you know, keep in touch from time to time. That's good. All right. Well, I'm glad he's still flying, that it did not frighten him, uh, <laughs> because that's that's the kind of thing that could, uh, could take somebody right out of the, uh, take the desire right out of somebody. So what did you learn with, with all that went on in this very short period of time when things were so normal and then things went so wrong? Tell me about what you learned about flying from that. 
Yeah, sure. So the first thing I learned that really stuck with me and, you know, really had me shaken for a while was that in the moment, I thought I was making all the correct decisions. Um, You know, we turned around, we saw this weather moving in and I thought, you know, I kept saying, and even to my student was like, let's not flirt with this. I've seen weather go to crap in a hurry. And I kept saying those things and thinking I was making the right decision. And the truthfully, you know, the difference between us landing and saying, high five, I'm glad we came back early. And what happened was, you know, a matter of maybe a minute. So um, that really shook me up. But what it showed me was that, you know, sometimes despite your best efforts, you're going to get in these situations that you might not have planned for, or even, you know, they just happen. But really what ended up saving us, and I didn't learn this until after the investigation, you know, concluded the report, but I actually did all the right things in that situation by, you know, I attempted to go around and then when the go around wasn't working, I actually was able to pull the power to idle and, you know, help keep the plane kind of from getting more bent out of shape than it already was. And I didn't know I was doing that in the moment. It just kind of happened as an instinct. And really that goes back to all the training that we do, you know, the the stall awareness training we go through, all the landings we do, all, all of those things that gave me the instinct that in the moment, even though I wasn't consciously making any of those decisions, I was relying on all the training I'd been through to kind of keep a bad situation from getting worse. And it turns out that the actions I made were actually the thing that kept that airplane from being totaled. And it's still flying to this day, of course, after going through several repairs. (laughs) And then the second thing that I learned is, you know, that we talk about hazardous attitudes in general aviation a lot. And there's the one that says, it can't happen to me. And I think that even all of, all of us want to say that we don't have that hazardous attitude, but I think we all do, even if we don't think we do. And I can say that from experience because even as it was happening, you know, I never, I never thought I was too good to get in an aircraft accident, but the truth is, is what we're doing every day is dangerous. And my experience and skill and all that thing, yeah, it helped keep me alive in that moment, but I wasn't above an airplane crash. I was never... You know, you're never so good that you can combat all the different elements that come into making a safe flight happen. And that's true now, even in the Air Force, that I can only control a certain amount of things and the rest are things you can't control and you're never above those elements. Nature is stronger than anything out there, no matter whether it's a C-5 or a Cessna 172. 100%. If you were to have done this flight over, would you have stopped coming on the way back and say, turn tail and run rather than when you saw that uh, front coming? Would you would you now, in hindsight, have gone back to the airport near your apartment on the other side of the bay? You know, I've thought about that a lot, and I can honestly say that the only reason my answer would be yes, land early is because of what happened. Because even, you know, even going through the investigation and everything, every step of the way I had an out and, or at least I felt like I did. And truly, like I said, the difference in us landing and saying, wow, what a good decision to come back early versus what happened was like a matter of seconds. And That's, you know, extra proven by the fact that there was a plane in the pattern that ended up landing, you know, a minute or so before us. Mm -hmm. And 
So, you know, now that that crash, you know, now that that crash has happened, you know, I'm never afraid to not flirt with weather. And even um, this year during uh, we were trying to get to Canada for an air show, I ended up diverting for gas and then there was weather and they said, hey, there's weather at the approach end. And, you know, I don't flirt with weather anymore. So we ended up diverting from our divert (laughs) because (laughs) I was like, you know what, I, you know, even in an F-16, you're not powerful enough to power through you know, things like wind shear and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's a good question to ask, you know, in the moment with the experience level I had and the knowledge I had, um, I probably would have made the same decisions. Um, but you know, now that I've been through that, I understand just how quickly, you know, things can change. And I think if I went back, you know, if I was in that same situation now with the experience I have, um, my decision would have looked different. Very interesting. Amy Fiedler, thank you for being part of I Laughed. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is awesome, Rob. It was a total treat for me to spend this time with Amy. At air shows, things are pretty busy for in-depth conversations. Oh, and if you're wondering if she still wants to be an astronaut, those plans are on hold for the moment. Flying the Viper is still quite a thrill for her, but she wants to be qualified if the opportunity ever comes her way. Thanks for joining me on this episode. I have learned from each one of our guests. They've brought some great stories to the podcasts. I'm eager to hear your story, too. Shoot me an email with a synopsis, and we'll consider it for an episode. My email address is rob at flying.media. Rob at flying.media. I Laughed is available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't yet subscribed, I hope you will. We drop a new episode every couple of weeks, so you can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. Julie Boatman is editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine, and Lisa DeFries is the executive producer of iLaft. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927, I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That. (laughs) 